We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Guidance is internal. Ignition sequence starts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Permission to board, please. Permission to come aboard. Permission to board. Permission to board. Do I have some permission to board that sweet mothership? This is the Permission Granted Podcast. Here's DA. Welcome inside the most recent edition of the Permission Granted Podcast. Of course, you can listen to any PGP, and it would have been the most recent at that point in time. But this one actually is PGP number 104. I'm not lying. PGP number 104 available on iTunes. Simply subscribe on iTunes by typing in permission granted. Or you can get the weekly podcast in the middle of the rest of the DA Show episodes by going to the DA Show iTunes page. Subscribing there and you'll get the PGP as well. Also available on our website, daoncbs.com. You know, we're just a couple of weeks away from Skip Bayless debuting an FS1, and that represents a bit of a sea change, if you will, in our industry, in sports media industry, because he's highly paid and, in this case, highly publicized, had success at ESPN, and now going to FS1, will this grand experiment work? So I wanted to have on a guy that studies this for a living because I think it's really interesting not only to sports media people, but also to sports fans. Because if this works, it might mean that there's a ton more where there's on-air sparring and debating in this way. And there's already some of that, but who knows? Maybe there could even be more of that. So the president of Barrett Sports Media, he's a sports radio consultant, a talent scout, media writer as well. You read his website, sportsradiopd.com. That's got breaking news of the sports media realm. And you follow him on Twitter at SportsRadioPD. He's a former program director himself at a lot of successful radio stations in sports radio. And that is my friend Jason Barrett. JB, how you doing? I'm doing well. You've already made me sound more important than I really am, but I appreciate it. <laughs> you know, I wanted to talk to you and pick your brain because we are just a few weeks away now from FS1's latest venture involving Skip Bayless. Now we have the information. It's going to be... Shannon Sharp alongside him, and they're going to go all in on debate this fall. They've already had Speak for Yourselves with Whitlock and Coward, and I wanted to know what your sense was in terms of the industry because FS1's betting big on debate, but there are others that say this is already kind of a a theme and a genre that is past its prime. So from where you sit, what do you view, uh, where do you stand on this venture that FS1's going in with with Skip? Well, I think there's a couple of components to it first. I mean, if you look at the talent that they've landed in Bayless, Sharp, uh, Cowherd, Whitlock, you could even go a couple layers uh, beyond that with Katie Nolan, Clay Travis, Nick Wright. They all fit that mold. And, you know, if you look at who's running Fox Sports, uh, that's Jamie Horowitz, who came from ESPN, who was the architect of the first uh, first take show. So obviously it's a comfort level. It's what he knows, and I, and I, 
I tend to agree with him that if you look, you know, everybody talks about they can't stand first take, but the show continues to dominate with numbers. And everybody, you know, if you talk to people in this industry, most would say whether you agree with their takes or not, Colin Cowherd, Jason Whitlock, Skip Bayless, they're pretty thought-provoking. And so if you're going to compete against ESPN, everybody talks about don't do that. And my answer to them all the time is, okay, then what's the alternative? Because here's the reality. You can tell me that you want to be more journalism-focused, you want to break news, you want to uh, feature more games. Well, first of all, from a business standpoint, go, go look at some of those contracts that all these networks are spending billions on for play-by-play rights. It's what's crippling them right now. Now, the interest level is strong, but just because the interest level is strong doesn't mean it's a good business decision. So from the debate side of things, I understand that, listen, it's never going to draw the audience that play-by-play does. On the other hand, it's a lot cheaper to run. It does command audience, and at some point, you have to carve your own identity and opposite a, a behemoth like ESPN, I don't know how many different, uh, you know, layers of programming is out there right now to do. And if you're in Jamie Horowitz's shoes and this is what you know and it's what you've had success with, I can't fault them for attempting that. Now, whether or not it's my cup of tea, you know, for every Colin Cowherd who I value and I think it's tremendous, I, I'm not as uh, excited about some of Skip's antics. But do they work? Absolutely. So... You know, I don't think it's as simple as is it a failure or is it a success. I think it's about carving your own niche, trying to make good business decisions to get on the map. Because let's face it, two years ago, nobody was talking about Fox Sports 1. And if they went into, you know, adding a bunch of play-by-play, would you go to it over ESPN? Probably not, unless they're putting, you know, the entire NFL package exclusively there. So, I think they have to find some areas where they could necessarily build a, you know, a, a unique identity. And this is going to take three to five years before you can really see where they're at. Everybody makes snap judgments based on the minute a show comes out. But you know as well as I do, D.A., most of the time it takes you know, a good two years before you really know where a show is at. You touched on something interesting. We hear a lot about how the price tags of guys like Skip Bayless are too expensive, and that's why ESPN got rid of them, that FS1 spending $5 million a year on Skip or $7 million a year on Colin or whatever it is, is so expensive that ESPN said, no, we're not going to go there. But you point out that that's a drop in the bucket comparatively to rights fees where you're spending hundreds of millions, sometimes billions of dollars. So... When ESPN said no to those guys, did they feel like they were too expensive or did they feel like they just didn't want to go that? They didn't want to keep, I guess, digging into that genre. I I think, you know, you look at it from ESPN's standpoint. The one thing they have been notoriously successful for is they develop future stars. And everybody's got a price tag at some point. So, you know, in their world, they wanted to keep Colin and Skip. Uh, Jamie was willing to pay a little higher than they were. And the fact that he had a personal relationship with both is why they're there. I I don't think Colin or Skip jump for that job unless Jamie Horowitz is running Fox Sports. But to your point about price tags, you know, if you spend $30 million on talent and it 
meant that you were going to land 500,000 viewers, or you spent $350 million on play-by-play rights and it tripled your audience or even 10 times your audience. It ultimately comes down to how much are you spending versus how much can you make. And if Jimmy Horowitz feels that, hey, listen, we'll never be as big from a cum standpoint of how many total people watch our programming, but we'll also never be spending 10 times what ESPN is spending on talent. That's where it really comes down to whether or not it's a success. It's not as simple as how many people are watching, how much did it cost for, you know, Fox Sports 1. So what if they don't record the numbers that first take us? As long as they can create a profitable business and a compelling number two that with some time can they can ultimately push the number one, well, that that's, you know, that's really where they should be right now. I think it's interesting that you mentioned these exploding rights fees, and then what is your in, what's your return on investment there? Do you think in the next ten years we will have kind of a DefCon four where the rights fees have superseded what you could make back on them, especially since viewership is going to keep fragmenting and we're going to keep watching on multiple screens and maybe just getting highlights via the internet or via social media, via Twitter, et cetera to where these corporations, these media conglomes, will be caught in monster contracts that they just go, I can't believe we're still locked into this for the next 10 or 15 years? I, I definitely think that's where we're headed. And I think, you know, look at it from a number of standpoints. TV companies are going to benefit because at some point they're going to pay less for the programming. Now, if you're in the shoes of, you know, someone running the NFL, MLB, NBA, or NHL, the first thing you're going to look at is, well, we've got to replace that revenue. And that's why, you know, including the, the Twitters, the Googles, the Apples, the Facebooks, all of these brands. And, and by the way, some of these own media companies, I mean, your company, CBS, NBC, Fox, they're all going to want, they're, they're all going to, want to play in the digital space because that's where, where the majority of money is headed. So there's no shortage of interest in the programming today. The fact is there's just scattered interest. So now maybe instead of watching two hours of TV, you watch one hour of TV and you watch another hour of videos on your phone or on your iPad. So it's not that the networks or or these leagues won't still have the same audience or even bigger audiences. You can make the case that there's more interest across multiple platforms now. But it's having to fragment that money in a number of different locations ultimately, you know, get to where they are now, but also exceed it down the road if you're running these uh, professional sports leagues. If you're in the media company's shoes, you're looking at, hey, the reality is television viewing is less than it was two, three years ago. And, you know, right now to, to be spending where you were three to five years ago, over the next 10 years, that's a scary business proposition. So I, I think they've ultimately... Uh, have to recreate their strategies, look at, you know, what they're spending versus what they're making, because nobody could foresee the way digital has exploded and essentially become the number one threat to television. So, you know, in in some ways, I think that it's a blessing for TV because they'll spend less down the road. But ultimately, you know, if if those viewers are now going to digital devices to watch, the challenge of every media company becomes how do I get them to watch it on my platform 
digitally versus going to someone else. So on that point, I often wonder what companies or leagues are doing it well, because it feels like a lot of this industry is reactionary. We wait to see if something succeeds or fails, and then we try to copycat that. We try to say, oh, if it failed, we won't ever do that again. Or if it's working, oh, let's try to do that. Who is at the front end of this digital evolution um, and where content is going, where you go, okay, those guys or those women are the trailblazers, either from a company, a media company, or from a league. Is there anybody that strikes you that way? I, I think it's in a couple of different ways. First, I mean, the one thing I'll give ESPN is they've always been a find us anywhere and where they're kind of company. I mean, they, they promote themselves as, you know, on TV, on the app, on radio. They've, they, they've always been, you know, for the fact that they have the four letters behind them and they have the branding, uh, they've always been really good at directing you to multiple locations. And so I, I don't think they're going to slow down anytime soon. Uh, if you go beyond that, obviously Twitter just entered the, uh, you know, the digital space with the NFL for this year. Yahoo did it last year. I didn't think long-term and, and obviously with Yahoo selling, that complicates some things. It'll be interesting whether or not Verizon, who's rumored to be buying them, and that's expected to come down here, um, how they factor into this because of the fact that, you know, they're in the phone business. But if you look at the way music changed with iTunes taking over the market and then Spotify and Pandora, that's, you know, at one point, I mean, think about it. We used to watch MTV for music. Now you watch it on YouTube and you listen to it on all these devices. And sports programming going to go through some of that same transformation where maybe the ESPNs are partnered with the NFL and Twitter, you know, and Facebook uh, to make sure the platform is promoted in all these locations. I, I think um, one, one brand that I'm, I've been really, I mean, I can't say from a business standpoint, they're where they need to be, but one brand that I think has really done it well coming out of the gate has been uh, what Adrian Wojnarowski's done with his vertical. Uh, if you look at it, they play in the podcasting space, they play in the written space, and their video production is outstanding. And by having great content and being in those three locations, it makes them more attractive to other media companies. So if you're Verizon, you know, and you're inheriting Yahoo, uh, you're going to want to promote that because it's going to obviously be, uh, be attractive to future clients. The, uh, the same, is, same is true on the radio side. Just yesterday, they announced the deal with SiriusXM who's picking up their podcast. So, you know, look, if you create good content and you promote it across multiple platforms, it's going to be a, become attractive. But to where you started the question about being the trailblazer and who's doing it great, you know, unfortunately, there's not really this, uh, this Facebook of the sports media space, if you will, that really went front and center. But I think when you have the assets, like an ESPN does with their multiple platforms, that certainly gives you an advantage. So to jump off that and to conclude, I look at Bill Simmons, who's always, I think, been looked at as a bit of a trailblazer. The way that he attacked podcasts and had success there, the way that he attacked online column writing and his success there, and now he has moved away from ESPN and obviously developed The Ringer, Grantland 30 for 30, but now The Ringer, the HBO show, and doing the podcast again, and Bill is getting skewered for the HBO show. And and I wonder, to me, it feels a little bit too heavy-handed, as though everybody was waiting either for this thing to completely revolutionize sports television or 
there's a resentment to his success, and so people are waiting to bury him. But, like, it feels like we're only two months into this, and you said two or three years it takes to really grade out, and he is just getting lambasted all over the place. What have you felt about the reaction to what Bill has done after leaving ESPN? Well, you're you're dead on with your assessment there. I, I think there's been this army of critics waiting for him to fall flat on its face, and you have those who champion the Bill Simmons cause who are waiting for him to become the you know the messiah for sports media. And here's the reality: I, I think Bill's always been an incredible writer. I love his podcast, the fact that it's free flowing and feels like you're listening to a collection of his friends just. You know, basically BS about a number of sports issues, and it and it's fun. It feels feels loose um, on television. He's come across as stiff and not comfortable. Um, I think part of that, and, and this is just one man's opinion. Others will have different you know different perspectives on him. But what I've noticed is when Bill's at his best is when he's reacting, and in TV, Bill's in a position where he's got to be the driver. And some guys are just naturally comfortable doing that. Some guys aren't. And I, I don't know, you know, six months from now, he may be incredibly smooth with it. But out of the gate to expect a guy who's never been a driver, has never been, you know, ultimately create a weekly Conan O'Brien show of sports who hasn't been in that space, that's challenging. And so I think, you know, that's why you're getting some of these early, uh, you know, blemishes on his record. But Back, back to the whole point of this, you know, as far as being a media brand who's in the right locations, I think that's one thing Simmons has always done well. Um, with The Ringer, with his podcast, with TV, he's got the right idea. The question is, does he have the skill set to be strong in all of those areas? And quite frankly, D.A., not, not everyone is great at doing all those things. I mean, most people are good at two or three, not at three or four. And so... You know, he's got to figure out how to become a television star, which is way different than being a polarizing writer and uh, and a gifted guy who can, you know, have a loose, free-flowing podcast. So if he can pull that off, definitely he'll have a, a strong brand there to, to work with. But I think if he doesn't succeed on HBO, it can hurt him because you can be strong with the ringer, you can be strong with the podcast. But ultimately, the majority of that money that he's seeing and that people are counting him on, uh, counting on him for, is with his HBO program. So he's got to deliver there. Jason Barrett is the president of Barrett Sports Media. You got to check out his website if you haven't already. If you're in the industry, I'm sure you have, and that is SportsRadioPD.com. He's got tons of breaking news and a new column on tapping into the brand's history of your sports radio station or your radio station in general. He's a radio consultant for sports media, talent scout, media writer, etc., speaker, media guest as well. You can follow him on Twitter at Sports Radio PD. JB, it is good to catch up, my man. Keep doing what you're doing, and uh, we will talk again. You got it, buddy. Good talking to you. All right, thanks much to Jason Barrett for joining us here on the Permission Granted podcast. The overwhelming critique of Simmons' HBO show any given Wednesday to me is a little, it leaves me shaking my head a little bit. Simply because all of us in sports media expect to be given some amount of time to let something gestate, to let something grow, to let something become what it's supposed to be. None of us in sports media 
like the idea of having six weeks or four weeks or two shows somehow grade us, somehow be the end-all, be-all. You know, none of us appreciate that. Now, I realize the heat lamp is on Bill far more than it is on most people because he's maybe, well, he is probably the most visible sports writer in America and one of the most visible sports media members. So I get it, and there's pressure at HBO, and with wealth and with money and with contracts with notoriety and attention comes less patience. Get it. But it's just seemed like people were waiting for it to be bad in some way so that they could skewer it. And then the moment one person skewered it, it was like, okay, floodgates are open. Let's crush it. And I'm like, damn, we all want patience in this industry, but we are totally unwilling to give it to Simmons on this show, even though everything he's ever done has been pretty successful, if not extraordinarily successful. So I find that a little unfair. I do. And and I actually think a lot of it is really enjoyable. You know, are there things that I would tweak as well? Sure. If I'm the executive producer there, I would tweak some things. But the overwhelming cacophony of, of criticizing that show is like, boy, is that the only show in sports media that matters? Is anything else getting graded out even to a tenth of the percent that any given Wednesday is? It's almost as though that is the ship that all the rest of sports media, you know, is is cargo on. And if that's not good, well, there's hell to pay. It just seems a little insane to me. I, I don't see the media critique of podcasts, of other sports radio shows, of other television shows nearly to the extent. I mean, it's become its own cottage industry to critique any given Wednesday. It's in its, like, second month. Pretty extraordinary, pretty astounding, but I, I understand some of that comes with the territory. All right, side B of the Permission Granted podcast right now. All right, welcome into side B of the Permission Granted podcast. Hope you enjoyed that interview with DA and Jason Barrett. This is Sean Mraz, the executive producer of the DA Show, joined in a very special side B. How about this one? With both associate producers of the DA Show, to my right, is Jolton Joel D'Aloisio, and on the phone from his apartment with a fan he just had to turn off in the middle of a heat wave is James Ward. James, how are you? I'm doing well. I guess uh, I guess Joe's next permission granted podcast appearance. I'll have to join on the phone too since we're, we're you know, sharing our airtime here. <laughs> you know, it's funny because right before I brought Joe in here, he goes, "Are you sure this is okay? I don't want. I mean, I, I don't know what to do here. What are we gonna do? Three people here? I, I don't understand." To be fair, this is my first three-way, and Whoa. I didn't want to uh, interrupt or disturb. I know you take this uh, very seriously, Ward. So I felt bad coming in, but Mraz is the executive producer, and he made an executive decision here. Well, listen, we're on, we're on permission granted podcast one hundred and four, right? So we're four into the uh, new the bicentennial, something like that. Don't ask me, uh, Ward. Take that one. I think it, I think centennial actually implies that there's years involved, so I don't think that works. But uh, oh, okay. Well, regard. My point being here is, if this goes well, which you know, uh, eighty-two seconds in and counting in, it has not gone well. Maybe this is something we continue with all three of us, since all three of us work on the show. But who knows? We'll see. That's- yeah, I I will say this. I bought the new Phil Steele magazine finally after looking at all the bookstores around my house, magazine shops. So 
I'm pumped to read that, so pretty much nothing that happens today will ruin my day. Okay, all right, how about that? So James is all into the college football, and I'm going to get to that. But first, Ward, two weeks ago when Joe had his disaster in Canton that was discussed here in the Permission Granted podcast, you too were on a vacation, a not very publicized vacation, at least on the show or anything, but I wanted to touch on it for a sec. You and uh, your girlfriend, or fiancé, fiance. I keep forgetting fiancé, right, jeez. You guys flew to the Pacific Northwest and went to Seattle. Now, why would anybody, any sports fan of the show, care about a trip to Seattle? Well, very simple. You guys got to check out Safe Goal Field and went on a very special night, some of which might shock some people. Why don't you tell us what happened when you went to Safe Goal Field? So, two things. Aurora and I, my beautiful fiance, we do vacations every summer. We try to go to just different kind of places. Neither one of us are like a cruise or tropical island type people. So we like to kind of go to places we haven't been and just kind of explore. So. Right, very pasty white, don't get me out of the sun, just get me somewhere fun. Right, right. So Seattle, place neither of us have been, so we went to Seattle. Of course, if you go to Seattle, baseball fan like myself, you have to check out the Mariners game. Not only was it a Mariners game, it was also Ken Griffey Jr. weekend, where they had festivities surrounding his Hall of Fame trip. So Friday night was Ken Griffey Jr. bobblehead night which is the game we went to. Saturday night was the Ken Griffey Jr. number 24 retirement ceremony. Which, by the way, if I, if I could stop you, it's stunning to me that they haven't retired his number already. Like, this was only happening this year in 2016. Right. In New York, Yankees don't wait. Rivera's number got retired, what, two seasons after he finished playing? So Saturday was the Ken Griffey Jr. retirement ceremony, and Sunday was the uh, like the uniform that gave away replica uniforms or something like that so anyway we did not have tickets going out there we bought tickets the night before the game a hundred bucks a ticket on StubHub. we sat in the third row on the mariners dugout best baseball seats i've ever sat in my entire life other thing interesting about the trip we were kind of palling around in the touristy district of seattle about three o'clock and Aurora's friend called called her and was like, you guys got to get in line now. The line's already, you know, down the street, around the corner. So we, so how, uh, down the street and around the corner, like how, like around just an outfield corner? Was How long was this line? We, so we stopped doing what we're doing. We got to the ballpark about three thirty, four o'clock. The line was literally one mile long. That's insane. I, the, from my place in line to the entrance of Safeco Field, per Google Maps, it was one mile. At 4 o'clock for a game that started at 7, seven o'clock for a regular season baseball game. And what time so the gates opened? Gates were supposed to open at 5.30, and they ended up opening them early because the crowd was just insane. So we ended up getting a bobblehead, but I think there were about 40,000 people in attendance, which for a regular season Mariners game against the Angels was was – Absolutely amazing. The atmosphere was great. The food was good. Um, the ballpark was very nice. Some of the complaints about the ballpark that I had read online, because I like to do a little little bit of research before I go to these places. Right. Atmosphere, not great. Um, fans, not very into the game. But because it was a special night, because there were a ton of people there, everyone was into the game from the first pitch to the last pitch. So it was a really, really good experience. Now, James, be honest. Was it worth the wait for a bobblehead? And is it like a good-looking bobblehead? You know, is you know, is it a it's, classic one? It's not the David Ortiz uh, not not for air bobblehead. <laughs> exactly. I because yeah. I, I haven't seen what it looks like, so I don't know if that's a bad job by me or. Well, 
so I collect bobbleheads. Aurora and I like going to different ballparks in different cities on bobblehead night to kind of collect bobbleheads. So we have all of them above our TV. And it is definitely the nicest one we own hmm. by far. So nice that one part-time CBS Sports Radio and WFAN host, one John Jastrzemski slash JJ After Dark, actually texted me saying, listen, if there's an extra bobblehead, pick it up for me. I don't care what it costs. I need it. It's the nicest bobblehead I've ever seen. It's Ken Griffey Jr. standing there, and he's got the Hall of Fame plaque in front of him. It's, it's really awesome to be... And there's already uh, versions of it going for for like a hundred bucks on eBay, so it's a sought after uh, bobblehead for sure. You know, see, here's my problem with that bobblehead. So, how many did they give away? You said forty thousand people were in the park. How many bobbleheads did they give away? I think they gave away twenty thousand. Okay, so now DA had told this story on the air. I forget which one of you guys was in. How he basically bought tickets to Mike Piazza bobblehead day, similar situation after the Hall of Fame, and he ran to the stadium. To, while his girlfriend was sleeping to get the bobblehead, went in, looked at the field, and left with the bobblehead. Didn't stay for the game just to make sure he got it. Now, the whole problem I have with these bobbleheads is when they come out and they're very commemorative, if you will. So Piazza, Griffey, obviously this year with the Hall of Fame. The Yankees earlier in the year gave away like a Mickey Mantle triple crown bobblehead in honor of that anniversary. Like, these are really cool. Why must they only give away the first, you know, to get the first amount of people in the park? I guess to make sure they're in there and then they're going to end up spending on concessions and before you know it, they've made their money on it. Can you just make enough bobbleheads so that everybody in the park gets one? So no kid goes home unhappy and any extras you have, you turn around, you sell it in your merchandise store anyway. It's a collector's item. They want to make sure it's a collector's item. But, but, so, but 40,000 but 40, doesn't make it a collector's item? No, not if everyone there gets one. What? But then that's all the people that could get one then. Is everybody there? If Let's say let's say you make everyone for the amount of seats you have in the park. That's still a collector's item? Yeah, I guess. But I, th- I like the fact that you have to show up early. I like the fact uh, that it's, that's hogwash. you really want it. Hey, listen, I got a Nolan Ryan bobblehead from, from City Field, and I got there in the second inning, and I still got a bobblehead, so... If it's a sought-after bobblehead, if it's something that people want, they'll show up early and they'll get it, or they'll show up late and they won't. So that Nolan Ryan one wasn't isn't worth much then if you got there late and you still got your hands on one. No, no, there was. Uh, I think I looked, and so they're going for like seven ninety nine on eBay. Now, uh, how many of these bobbleheads do you have? And you do you often like look at how much they are worth? Do you plan on selling them or anything like that? I, we have five. We have two. Two, uh, we have doubles of five different ones. We have Masahiro Tanaka from Yankee Stadium, Nolan Ryan from City Field, uh, Evan Longoria from uh, visiting the Tropicana. You got some collection. <laughs> <laughs> I, saved the, I saved the best for last. So obviously Ken Griffey Jr. And I have a Javi Lopez Braves bobblehead. Boy, that's a weird one. Ooh. The former catch? Come on, Joe. Javi Lopez. Yeah. I was eight years old when he played. <laughs> yeah, if that. Joe Joe might not have been alive when Javi Lopez yeah, played. Javi Lopez doesn't ring a bell in my book. Javi <laughs> yeah. Lopez, is he a girl I know's father? Who is this guy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, Javi Lopez, one of the best hitting catchers of the of the nineties. Oh, good to know. Joe is so lost in this. All right, well, let's transition yeah. away from bobbleheads. Javi Lopez might have been, might as well be like a death metal band to go. <laughs> Uh, very briefly, I want to hit on this topic for two minutes before we uh, we close out with a couple thoughts on the show the night of, that which we've been hammering here weekly on the Permission Granted Podcast. You guys now, we're two weeks away from college football season. We're three weeks away from the NFL. And I want to tip my hat to you guys because this for Joe, this will be the second year. For James, this will be the fourth year where you guys on football Saturdays and Sundays 
have, I would argue, the most difficult jobs at CBS Sports Radio uh, at any time of the year, and that that is just the hecticness that comes with football season. Are you guys excited, angry, ticked off, or kind of feeling refreshed and looking forward to what's about what you're about to embark on with football season? So we're lumping Joe in with me. I all right. Now that's <laughs> honestly, James. I was going to say that's not fair at all. Okay. I'm, I'm there two hours Saturday night, two hours Sunday. James does all the work. Okay, James definitely has a. T- James is the producer for those of you listening who may be riding around the car, listening to your local affiliates on Saturdays and Sundays. The Ion College Football hosted by Ack, the Ion Football hosted by Ack, and Sunday Morning Football hosted by Da. All produced by James Ward, and then to clean up the mess at night comes Joe D. So James, you obviously have to put in more hours. How do you feel about the upcoming football season? To be honest, this you know, there's a lot more stress involved. There's a lot more pressure involved, but it kind of makes me do a better job. If that makes any sense, like, I I, I like totally I agree. To, I feel like I can't wake up Monday and, and just kind of fart around and not pay attention to to anything like I can on some of these summer weeks. Whereas Monday during football seasons, I really have to get going. I really have to look at potential guest ideas for the weekend. I have to start my my Ward's winners blog. I have to really get get into it right away. So I don't have a lot of days off where I don't do anything uh, work-related, but I, I actually like it. I like the pressure of it. I'm not really sure if, if I, I'd say that I like it, you know, when I'm in the heat of it in like week four or whatever, and, I've, and I haven't slept at all, and I've been, you know, working 10-hour days every week. But I, I actually, I like the pressure of it. I like trying to come up with interesting guest ideas. I like trying to track down some of these former players at these big schools, you know, when there's rivalry matchups, like when you got, you know, USC, Notre Dame, and the end of the season trying to find up, find guys that had, had big moments in the series and stuff like that. So right. I, I like the pressure. It's stressful. It's tiring, long days, but um, look, actually looking forward to it right now. Joe, how about you? Yeah, they're like James said, they're very, very long days. I can't take any credit. Like I said, I only do the last two hours on Saturday and Sunday. The one thing that I did notice is it's a long day for Ak who hosted. So by the time I get there, you know, he's just really struggling and, and needs he needs some extra help on my end, which then adds some stress from me, making sure everything's there. James leaves and I probably text him about a hundred times that, you know. Where can I get this? Where can I get that? How do I find this? How do I find that? <laughs> so technically he leaves, but he's still working. Now, James. Yeah, I, I get off the subway sometimes, and I got like eight texts from Joe. Where's this? Where's that? Never mind. I got it. It's okay. I got it. How do I get him to stop asking about this? What are we doing here? So, yeah, that's actually a good point. I forgot about that. That's one thing I'm looking. I'm not looking forward to for football season. <laughs> texts well, from Joe. Well, that's not changing, so be ready. <laughs> now, Gene. <laughs> James, obviously the host, DA, who we work with, obviously, on the DA show. You get to work hand-in-hand with him on Sunday morning football. Is there anything new that we should be looking forward to on Sunday morning football this season? Not not confirmed. Obviously, we're still going to try to get the best guests possible. There is a potential that one big CBS sports NFL analyst will be joining DA at least monthly on the show. So that'll be pretty good, I think, if that happens listeners will be pretty excited about it but we're still going to do kind of the same segments that we did last year we're still going to do a gambling segment for all all you big time players of nfl games <laughs> dropping a little cheddar on the on the football spreads. whoa think, hey he used cheddar and spread in the same line there that's a good job by james i know Impressive. i know all i needed was like some cracker some cracker metaphor and then we'd be good to go all right well now let's wrap up this permission granted podcast with a couple minutes on the show that is grip the nation the night of 
Again, your spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. For those who are listening, James Ward, just like myself and Joe, I know DA's into the show. I mean, people around this newsroom are into the show. And if you see Twitter on a Sunday night, it lights up for the show the night of. So as we stand now, we are two episodes away. We have completed six. I need everybody's updated uh, list of scenario. Is Nas convicted of guilty or not guilty? And who is the actual murderer? James? I'm going with the guy I said all along. I think the murder was too personal for it to be a random person, whether it was it was it was the Dwayne Reed character that we learned about last week, whether it was the guy uh, from the funeral home who we learned a little bit about this week. It was too personal of a murder with the 22 stab wounds on her 22nd birthday for it to be someone huh. other than the stepfather. And now with the addition of the money that the stepfather is going to get with her death, uh, I, I still think it has to be the stepfather. I don't see it being any any other way. The thing that's interesting to me is that Nas is obviously getting hardened by Riker's prison and turning into, I mean, we saw him smoke crack in the last episode. He, he's getting tat, prison tattoos. So the thing that's interesting to me is by the time he gets found not guilty, is he already too far gone to really be the same kid that he was before he went to prison okay i'm gonna let joe give his theory in a sec but i just have a rebuttal to what you just said there and that is yeah he's getting the tattoos looking ridiculous but there is that scene with a little male-on-male interaction where after that Nas picks up the phone and calls his lawyer the cell phone he shouldn't have and calls the lawyer and he talks about being locked up with a bunch of animals in the zoo and it seems like that was a real um a revelation moment for Nas where he kind of had a wake-up call like what the hell am i doing in here so I don't know if he, I think he might have like a little spinneroo, if you will, from going to the hardened criminal to, I don't want to spend the rest of my life in here. And I think we saw that moment in that episode, but I could be wrong. I may have read that wrong. I think that's a good, that's a good ploy. I think with that, I think he likes that, likes his lawyer. So I think he was just trying to see, see how he could get himself away from that prison cell. So he called the one person that I think he really likes. Oh, that's fair. Joe? Yeah, I agree with James. I from the start of the show after that the first couple of episodes, I thought it was the stepfather. I thought when uh earlier, I think it was episode 3 when he went to identify the body, he was just in total he claimed that he, that wasn't his daughter and I think that he was just in total shock seeing what he did. And, you know, piecing everything together what we learned in this past episode and how he's going to pretty much cash in now from her death. I think it, it, it all makes sense that the stepfather committed the crime. At the same time, though, the stepfather may be connected with Dwayne Reed. Because in mm-hmm. this episode, we don't see Dwayne Reed at all. I think they do that on purpose there. Yeah. Uh, I'm agreeing with Joe. I think the stepfather's in on it. Now, I've always said from the beginning, I thought Dwayne Reed, who we didn't know his name at the beginning, was the killer. I still think he is the killer, but I think he was hired by the stepfather. I think that's where they're pointing you. And I think the hearse driver there is there to throw you off. I think he's just a creep. And if I could, as a rebuttal to something James also said earlier, when he mentioned it about being personal, and I think maybe I found the one mistake in this show, if you will. They mentioned the 22 stab wounds, and that kind of shocks Totoro. And that might have been like four episodes ago, right, James? That was a while ago? Yeah, I think it was the, It might have even been the second episode of the show. And that's supposed to make you feel like, okay, this is something personal. And I get that. And maybe that is the reason it's personal with the stepfather being involved in everything. But my question to that would be, Andrea already has one stab wound by, the, by Nas stabbing her in the hand to start that night of the night of, right? So did they screw up by saying she had 22 stab wounds and making it personal? Because then technically only 21 of the stab wounds would have been from the killer. 
Huh. Never thought about that before. That's interesting. Right? You know, that, and maybe that was one mistake the show made because they're trying to make you feel like it's personal. Maybe they'll go back to it. Oh, it was personal. She had 22 stab wounds, where in reality, one is not from the killer. We already know one stab wound is from Nas. And you have to count that. I mean, it's obviously a huge gash, and it's, it's a stab wound. Right, and she was bleeding profusely out of her hand, so I'm sure they definitely saw that. Right, so maybe that was a mistake by the show. Maybe 22 stab wounds means nothing, and that was meant to throw us off, and nobody thought of that angle. But that was just something I had to throw in there, because I, that part of it didn't make sense to me. Huh, that's a good point. The thing, I gotta say this, I put it on Twitter yesterday. Enough with John Stone's feet. I mean, we get it. They're cured! That was the biggest part of the episode, they're cured! Yeah, but there's been like... At least five to ten minutes on his stupid feet every single episode. We get it. His feet are gross. He's got the eczema. He's got the dry skin. Okay, cool. We don't need to spend ten minutes of that on every single episode. I, it's almost. It's almost like. It's almost like he made uh, Totoro wanted to make sure that his feet got top billing on the marquee. It's like starring uh, Anthony Totoro and Anthony Totoro's feet. Like it's just. It's a little weird for me. I agree with you, James. I think the uh, the feet, it's disgusting, it's gross, I'm tired of seeing it, but at the same time, I think there's more of a meaning to those feet. Uh, you know, I, th- I thought, like, as you saw his feet getting worse, all right, it looked as if things were getting worse for Nas. Now that his feet are, are better and cured, it makes you think that there's some hope for Nas. Mm, Joe playing the symbolism game with the feet. Yeah, I. It's just, it's, <laughs> James, listen, I, James, not buying James, it. I, I'm with you. I think it's disgusting, and I'm I'm tired of this, him scratching it. And I'm glad his damn feet are, are are healthy now. But at the same time, I think there's more of a meaning to the feet. Interesting, you, but it's still so gross. Like, I just don't. I, I don't know. And I said Anthony Turturro. It's John Turturro. I don't yes. know who Anthony Turturro is, but well, I'm the still... John John Stone John Turturro characters. It's like. All right, your feet are gross. They're cured. We better not see them again. All right, well, that's, so there we go. Two episodes left. James has had it with the feet. Something tells me the feet will make another appearance. Boys, we've literally hit the wall on time here, so I'm going to let everybody go. But, James, give us a Twitter plug, and maybe you'll tweet out that Ken Griffey Jr. bobblehead for the world to see. What's your Twitter? Twitter is at James Ward CBS. All right, and Joe D? At Joe D CBS. And you can follow me at Mraz CBS. Tweet us all your night of thoughts here as we will be definitely wrapped up on Sunday night when we check out episode 7, I guess, as the show is coming to an end. And uh, thanks for listening to PGP 104. 105 comes your way next week. Have another tremendous summer weekend. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. 